So finally this morning, after uh, over a month-long break, we are now returning to our study in the book of Revelation, and we are in chapter 11, focusing on the vision described in Revelation 11, verses 1 to 14, which I just read for you. And we'll come to that in a moment. But first, let me share with you a decision I've made about how I'm going to approach the rest of this series. I'm not going to stop preaching through Revelation, but starting today I'm going to speed up preaching through Revelation and cover larger chunks of the book in less detail. Of course, there are various ways to approach a chunk of text. You could take a chapter at a time and preach a chapter at once, or you could break a chapter up into two or three sermons, or you could break a chapter up into seven or eight sermons. From my understanding, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones took 16 years to preach through Romans. (laughs) Obviously, it can be done at various levels of detail, and you're still preaching the Word, but you're kind of deciding how much you're going to zoom in and how much you're going to zoom out. And I think it has been helpful for us to zoom in as much as we have in basically the first half of Revelation here, in that I've been able to give you a good, helpful paradigm of the book um, and consider how... Typically, the Reformed tradition understands the book of Revelation, and I think I've showed you in sufficient detail how we would work that out and how we would apply that paradigm with respect to the minute details. But for various reasons, it is my considered opinion that I think it will be more pastorally helpful at this juncture to speed up now and uh, zoom out a little bit and cover the rest of the book in a little bit less detail. So generally what you can expect is I'm still going to be obviously preaching through Revelation. I'm still preaching the text, preaching the Bible, but I'm going to be dealing with bigger sections, which necessarily means that I'm not going to be able to belabor the points and the interpretation of various minute details, nor provide you with the same level of thoroughness in terms of the exegetical groundwork by which I've interpreted the various details in an attempt to convince you and persuade you of every little thing that's going on in Revelation. And so I'll continue to give you, of course, what I believe to be correct interpretations. And obviously I'm going to try to give you some exegetical work so you can see where I'm coming from. But I'm going to stop short of some of the thoroughness in terms of undergirding and exploring all of those little details as we move forward. And rather, I'll just try to summarize what's going on a little bit more and make appropriate application to our lives in Barbados in the 21st century. So you can think of it a little bit like speeding up a podcast or a video that you're watching to one and a half speed or two times speed. Once you have a basic idea what's going on, with respect to what you're watching or listening to. So we've been in the first half of Revelation. We kind of have an idea how we're approaching it, how we're interpreting it, and we're going to kind of just move a little bit faster now until we reach chapter 20, at which point I'm going to slow down again because then we're going to reach the infamous millennium, and there are various approaches on that which I think are worthy of our consideration. So we'll slow down again once we get there. Um, But we're going to move relatively quickly from uh, today through to the end of chapter 19. 
And God willing, we will finish Revelation, hopefully by approximately the end of November. Alright? So with all that in mind, let's jump back into Revelation 11 and look at the vision that John sees in that section. And by way of reminder, since it's been over a month, in Revelation 11, John draws on the recent events of the first Jewish-Roman War and the siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 66 to 70. So there's an allusion here to the first Jewish-Roman War and the siege of Jerusalem from A.D. 66 to 70. Notice that in our passage, this is all by way of review, Notice that in our passage, there are the time units of 42 months and also 1,260 days, which is 42 times 30, or 42 months. And therefore, um, or pardon me, and for 42 months from A.D. 66 to 70, the Romans surrounded Jerusalem and eventually destroyed the temple within it. John is alluding back to, or or I I should say Christ, who's giving this vision, is alluding back to this recent historical event and telling us through imagery that as there was a Jerusalem, which was literally surrounded by the nations for 42 months or 1260 days in the first Jewish-Roman war, so there is a Jerusalem which will be symbolically surrounded by the nations again. So... We can put it like this, right? Christian, have you ever been trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea, so to speak? God can part the waters for you. Be still and know that he is God. Christian, have you ever faced a Goliath that you could not defeat? God has sent an anointed shepherd to slay the giant for you and to rescue you. This is the sort of thing that's being portrayed in this vision. It's an allusion back to a literal historical event, not to tell us that it will literally happen again, but rather to tell us that what is about to happen will be like what has already happened. That what is coming is going to be like what is past. So as Jerusalem was surrounded by the nations in the first Jewish-Roman war, so there is a Jerusalem which will be surrounded by the nations again. And who is Jerusalem in this figure? Paul writes to the Gentile Christians in Galatians chapter 4, verses 26 to 28, the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. In other words, we are born citizens, so to speak. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. So we are children of the Jerusalem above. We are citizens, therefore, by birth of the Jerusalem above. Gentile Christians, right? Writing to the Christians in Galatia. In, in New Testament categories, it is not ethnic Jews who are the true Jerusalem, the true Jews, but it is believers in Christ, both ethnic Jews as well as ethnic Gentiles together. And it is these believers in Christ, both Jew and Gentile together, who belong to the Jerusalem above. 
It is these believing Jews and Gentiles who are, like Isaac, children of promise and sons and daughters of the Jerusalem that is above. It is those who are in Christ, both Jew and Gentile together, who are, as Hebrews who, as Hebrews 12, 22 puts it, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. I have come to Jerusalem. If you're a believer in Christ, you have come to Jerusalem. We are citizens of Jerusalem. We are Jerusalem. And Revelation is telling us, Revelation 11 is telling us, that as there was a Jerusalem which was literally surrounded by the nations for 42 months or 1260 days in the first Jewish-Roman war. So there is a Jerusalem which will be symbolically surrounded by the nations again. Can you all hear me in the back still with the rain? Alright. Test, 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 test. Test. Is that better? Or still no? More? Test? Better? Alright. So in fact, not only will we be surrounded by the nations, but trampled. According to verse 2 of Revelation 11. Do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Listen, viewed from one perspective, the church is being battered and persecuted and hated and trampled and is, in some sense, losing in this present age. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 19. If in Christ... We have hope in this life only. We are of all men most to be pitied. Jesus said in John 15, 18 to 20, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. World history is replete with examples of Christians. The New Testament Jerusalem being trampled by the nations. And in the first century Roman Empire, under Nero at which time the book of Revelation was written. The church knew it well. There is a very real sense in which we are being trampled. This is the basic imagery of Revelation 11. Viewed from one perspective, the church is being trampled. John acknowledges this reality, or, or Christ giving this vision acknowledges this reality. And now this review brings us to our study of new material today, which has four points. I'm going to give you the points, and I'm going to expand on each one. First, the allusion to Ezekiel's man measuring the temple. Second, the identity of the two witnesses. Third, the apparent victory of the beast over the two witnesses. 
And fourth, the vindication of the two witnesses. Each of these points will lead naturally to the next. So let's start with the allusion to Ezekiel's man measuring the temple. By Ezekiel's man, this is what I mean. In Ezekiel chapter 40 and verse 3, we are introduced to a, quote, man, end quote, with a measuring reed in his hand. And the next eight chapters have this man measuring a temple seen in a vision. Or, well, really, I should say the next seven to be more precise. Pretty much the remainder of Ezekiel from 40 and onward have this man measuring a temple seen in a vision. And for the purposes of our study today, we need to know that this episode of measuring the temple is not an obscure, brief, fleeting, unnoticeable part of the book of Ezekiel, but it's actually a main and conspicuous section of the book of Ezekiel, which anyone who has read or heard read, as the first century Christians would have, would be familiar with. There would be no way to teach through the book of Ezekiel, even if you were just doing a high-level summary, without talking about the measuring of the temple. And Ezekiel 47 describes water flowing from this temple and giving life. Listen to Ezekiel 47 and verse 9. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Ezekiel's man sees a river going out from the temple and giving life wherever it goes. This would be in the consciousness of first century Christians who were taught and familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. For the sake of time and the sort of simplicity that I mentioned to you at the beginning of this sermon this morning, the Reformed tradition takes Ezekiel's temple, or vision of a temple, not to refer to a future end times structure, but rather, again, as a symbol of the church comprised of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. As Peter says, living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Christ Jesus. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 6. So within this paradigm, there will be water flowing from the church, which will give life wherever it goes. And what does Jesus say in John 7, 38? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There are two interesting things about this statement. One is that it says out of his heart, rather than 
into his heart. Which indicates that the living water will be from the Christian flowing outward. As opposed to water flowing into the Christian. Second, there is no explicit verse in the scripture in the Old Testament that says that out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But Jesus says, as the scripture has said. So evidently, Jesus is synthesizing the teaching of scripture. Like I could say, as the scripture says, Abram was chosen to be the father of many nations. There's no explicit verse that has that exact phrasing. But we could say, yeah, the scripture says that. Scripture teaches that. Right? This is what Jesus is doing. He's synthesizing the teaching of the Old Testament. It seems to the Reformed tradition that Jesus is drawing on the imagery of Ezekiel 47 to make this point that Scripture says that water will flow out of believers into the world. That there is a cornerstone, namely Jesus, upon which we as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. And from us, who are built up into a spiritual house, into this temple that Ezekiel saw symbolically represented, out of us will flow rivers of living water, which will give life everywhere it goes. So when John, in Revelation 11, sees a vision of the measuring of the temple, we should understand, as the first century believers would, what the illusion is being made to. Where else in Scripture do we have a conspicuous example of a temple being measured? It's Ezekiel's vision. And we should expect, therefore, that rivers of water are going to flow out of this Revelation temple to give life. Which leads us, very naturally, into an inquiry into the identity of the two witnesses. Who are these witnesses? Again, for the sake of time and simplicity, let me summarize. The Reformed tradition understands these witnesses as being symbolic of the whole church. Let me explain. I argued back when we were studying the Old Covenant Tabernacle in our evening series a couple years ago that the lampstand in the Old Covenant Tabernacle represented God's presence. This lampstand with seven lamps and seven lips and so on and so forth, seven bowls. In Zechariah 4, verses 2 and 3, which is many years later after the lampstand appears in the Old Covenant Tabernacle, Zechariah sees a vision of a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Now the way it's described, this is indisputably a description of the same lampstand that was in the tabernacle, even though there's a period of a, a long time, several hundred years, between the Old Covenant tabernacle and the vision 
that Zechariah sees. It's clear from the description in Zechariah's vision that he sees in a vision the lampstand that was in the Old Covenant tabernacle. But this time, in Zechariah's vision, there are two olive trees beside the lampstand pouring oil into the lamp. Now, again, as I said, I argued a couple years ago when we were looking at the lampstand in the Old Covenant tabernacle that the lampstand represented God's presence. But for the very reason that in Zechariah's vision... It is the olive trees on either side of the lampstand which sustain the lamp. Many commentators argue, therefore, that the lamp cannot represent God since God's people don't sustain Him. But consider the role of the people of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to be a light to the nations. Though we do not sustain God, listen here, though we do not sustain God, we do sustain God's witness in the world. And if anyone's uncomfortable with that line of reasoning, hear Paul in Romans 10 and verse 14, where he's very common sense and pragmatic about it. How are they to hear without someone preaching? There is a sense in which, though God is able to raise up from the stones children of Abraham, by extension, by implication, God is able to raise up preachers of the stones. God is able to make preachers of the trees. God is able to make preachers ex nihilo, out of nothing. I'm not limiting God's power here. But there is a sense, biblically, in which if we do not preach, there is no witness In the world, how are they to hear without someone preaching? This is Paul's logic here. We don't wait for the stones to go up and share the gospel with our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, our friends. We don't say, well, God is almighty. God is sovereign. I mean, he could use anything. We recognize that the way that God has ordained it is that we are God's witness in the world. So the olive trees in Zechariah's vision do not represent the people of God keep sustaining God. Alright? But the question at the time of Zechariah's vision was this. Will the temple be able to be rebuilt? Or will the opposition to the temple be so severe that the temple of God will not be able to be rebuilt, and this lampstand will not be able to be lit again, in which case the light of God in the world will go out. This was the question which Zechariah's vision was intended to answer. The olive trees on either side of the lampstand, pouring oil into the lampstand, are keeping the lampstand burning. And God says in that section, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, O God. And he assures Joshua and Zerubbabel that the light of God will not go up. 
and that the people of God, as they work towards the rebuilding of the temple, will be successful. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. The light of God in the world will not go out. And so, the olive trees pouring oil in don't, don't represent the people of God sustaining God, but they do represent the people of God sustaining the witness of God in the world, in Zechariah's vision. So who is the light in Zechariah 4? It's God. But who keeps the light shining? The people of God. This theme is developed here in Revelation, in which we see the same imagery again. Two olive trees, and this time not one lampstand, but two, which are now symbolically said to represent the same thing. In Zechariah 4, they didn't represent the same thing, the olive trees and the lampstand. But in Revelation, they do. And this is the way that apocalyptic literature often develops stuff, is it, it uses similar language and similar imagery, but it puts a, a spin on it. So that you're not just recapitulating and rehashing what has been said before. But there is new aspects being taught, made discernible to the readers. In Revelation 11, the olive trees and the lampstands represent the same thing. Namely, what Revelation 11, 3 and 4 calls the two witnesses. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These, my two witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. These two witnesses, therefore, are the ongoing witness of God in the world. Just as the lampstand in Zechariah's vision was the ongoing witness of God in the world. So this lamps, these lampstands in Revelation 11 are the ongoing witness of God in the world and the means by which the light of God continues to shine into the world. Now which entity best fits that description from what you know of biblical theology? Which entity is it which is the means by which God's light shines into the world? John Piper? John MacArthur? Both of them together? Right? It's not, it's not any one person. It's not any two people. It's the church. Hence, why the Reformed tradition takes the two witnesses as symbolizing the church. It is the church which is the means of the light of God continuing to shine in the world. Two questions. First is, how could a symbol which represented God at one point in the biblical canon come to represent the people of God at a later point? In other words, if in Exodus and in Zechariah the lampstands represented God, how could the lampstands now represent people? The answer to that is that Jesus said both, I am the light of the world, and... You are the light of the world. So by the time we get to Revelation, we have found that Christ identifies so closely with His people that He says, whatever you do to that, you do to me. And so we see in this passage the light of Christ 
shining in the world through the church. And Christ is the light of the world, and his people are the light of the world. So we have no problem using the symbol both ways, just like Jesus uses the symbol both ways. Who's the light of the world? Jesus is the light of the world in one sense, and in another sense, we are the light of the world. Likewise, who is the lampstand? It's God in one sense, and it's God's people in another sense. Second question is, why two? Why are there two witnesses, two olive trees, two lampstands? Well, for one thing, the two olive trees in Zechariah represented primarily Zerubbabel and Joshua as figureheads of the whole people of God in their work of rebuilding. And so that's why there was two in Zechariah, and perhaps in Revelation it just stays at two. But I think, given the fact that the lampstand expands from one to two, it's more than that. And it seems that this is in keeping with God's established principle of jurisprudence, that every matter be established by two or more witnesses. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. And so the gospel is not the isolated opinion or hearsay of one man, but it is the concurrent testimony of all God's people. So from the temple in Revelation emanates in Revelation 11 the two witnesses, which is the witness of the church, which is, though it's not mentioned here, it's alluded to, like a river of water that emanates from the temple. Out of his heart will go streams of water which give life everywhere it goes. Now at this point, one might object that the two witnesses are not a river of water that gives life wherever it goes. Since we see in Revelation 11, and this brings us to our third point, the apparent victory of the beast over the two witnesses. The witnesses in Revelation 11 are opposed and seemingly defeated, not believed and received. If, in fact, they were intended to represent Ezekiel's river of water emanating from the temple and giving life wherever it goes. But consider that even in Ezekiel 47, there are limitations to the giving of life. I read you the section that says that the river gives life wherever it goes. But Ezekiel 47 and verse 11 says this, But the swamps and marshes of the great sea will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. So the river of life, pardon me, the river giving life everywhere it goes, is not to be understood strictly and technically as giving life everywhere, wheresoever it goes because there are going to be swamps and marshes which will not become fresh. The Bible does not anywhere portray the total and universal success of the gospel prior to Christ's return. There is nowhere in the Bible that says each and every man, woman, boy, and child will receive the gospel before Christ returns. There will always be, in other words, swamps and marshes. Revelation is telling us 
Revelation 11 is telling us that as we witness, we should not expect warm welcomes and receptivity and responses of faith everywhere we go. It would be naive to think that as we go talk to our co-workers, if we will just bring up the gospel, everyone will just swoon at the feet of Jesus and believe immediately without objection that everyone will just eagerly receive the good word with joy and repent and believe. It would be naive to think that there will be no opposition. The emphasis in Revelation 11 is on the opposition of the beast who was introduced to us in Revelation chapter 9 as the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Hebrews 9, 11. Revelation 11 is emphasizing the opposition of Satan. But though the opposition of Satan is real, it surely does not negate the truth that Christ will build His church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nor that in Abraham's seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. These are wonderful truths that we can cling to as we witness. But the emphasis of Revelation 11 is the beast's opposition and the apparent victory in times and places over the witness of the church. Consider that there are places in the world today which were once largely Christian, but now have become entirely Muslim, like sections of North Africa or sections of the Middle East. Or consider the Western world in which we live, which is growing increasingly hostile to Christ and the Gospel. Though we were, in fair, fairly recent history, so-called Christian nations. Sometimes, the, the beast appears to win. Doesn't he? That's what happens in Revelation 11. And that's what we see happening all around us right now. The beast is appearing to win. He's making war on the witness of the church, isn't he? And when we see a Christian provision in the law struck down, when we see a great Christian leader, or who we thought was a great Christian leader, scandalized, and caught in some sort of sin, and his witness is tarnished, when we see the advances of secularism and the various perverse ideologies that arise from these, don't we see exactly what happens here in Revelation 11, verse 10? Great merriment, making merry and exchanging presents on the part of those who are hostile to the church? Don't we see the beast making war on the two witnesses? Don't we see this great merriment and exchange of gifts 
whenever the witnesses are silenced? But how long do the witnesses in Revelation 11 stay dead? Only three and a half days. Let's look now, and this brings us to our fourth point. The vindication of the two witnesses. Just as we've taken the 42 months as a symbolic period as opposed to a literal period, so we're going to take the three and a half days to be a symbolic period as opposed to a literal period. The period of the church's witness in Revelation 11 is 42 months, which works out to three and a half years. In the period of her silencing in Revelation 11, it's three and a half days. Comparatively short time. If you zoom out far enough, you will see that the church cannot be silenced. They could not ultimately silence the early church, could they? Though they cut off heads Though they arrested and rounded up preachers, though they persecuted, though they hated, though they made war on the witnesses, though we see as in Acts when Herod executes James that people were pleased, so he laid hands on Peter. Though there's, though there's merriment, exchange of gifts as it were, whenever the beast conquers or appears to conquer the witnesses. They could not ultimately silence the early church. They cannot ultimately silence the church in North Africa or the Middle East. And they cannot, and they will not, ultimately silence the church here in the West. The church shall always rise again after a comparatively short time as the witnesses in Revelation 11 are resurrected. And they shall be vindicated by the approbation and approval of God symbolically represented to us in Revelation 11 as an upward call of God into his presence in Revelation 11 as, as John was permitted to come up and behold glorious things in Revelation 4 as our the world will always eventually see that the church has God's approval and that those who oppose the church incur God's wrath symbolized by the earthquake in Revelation 11 and verse 13. <clears throat> the reason we say, O Church of Christ invincible before the sermon, and the reason we'll sing it again afterward is because the Church of Christ is invincible. The lyrics fit so well with the text this morning. O church of Christ in sorrow now, where evil lies in wait. When trials and persecutions come, this light will never fade. 
For though the hordes of hell may rage, their power will not endure. Our times are in the Father's hand. Our anchor is secure. The powers of the hordes of hell will not endure. It will be but three and a half days, so to speak. Look, the Bible acknowledges it. They're going to hate us. They're going to make war on us. They're going to persecute us. In fact, at times and in pockets, they're going to kill the two witnesses. And there will be great merriment and exchange of gifts whenever that happens. There will be times when the hordes of hell gain the upper hand. But ultimately, the gates of hell shall not prevail. The church of Christ shall always rise again. And her witness shall always be vindicated. This is the theological message of Revelation 11. Revelation 11 was given from the head of the church through John to give Christians courage in the face of opposition. Even fierce opposition under Nero. To go on testifying and to believe that Christ will be a sure and steady anchor even as they face the wave of death. What if the beast kills us? Well, what if he does? We'll only be dead for a comparatively short time. Three and a half days. It was given that they might go on testifying. That the two witnesses would continue to go out from the temple to let our river of witness continue to flow giving life wherever it goes, while at the same time being realistic about the opposition that we will face, about the hardship that will be ours, about the hatred that will be ours. Jesus said, I'm telling you these things to keep you from falling away. Because if you go out triumphalistically thinking, a river of life is going to go from the temple. That's our witness. We're going to go into the highways and byways and everyone's going to believe immediately no one will oppose us why would you oppose Jesus it will be pleasant it will be joyful it will be easy and then you go out there and find that the beast makes war on the witnesses then you're going to be tempted to fall away but when you hear that yes there's a river yes yes there's a witness that goes forth from the temple yes it gives life all over the place but there's going to be swamps and marshes and the beast is going to try to kill you. Right? When you go out and you find, hey, it's just like that. In a, in a weird way, it's actually kind of encouraging because you're like, this is exactly what Jesus told us would happen. Right? What would it look like? What would it mean if you imbibed and appropriated this theological message and applied it to your life this week. That God has ordained His witnesses to go out into a hostile world. Yes, by virtue of the allusion back to Ezekiel, they'll give life as they go. But the emphasis here in Revelation is that they're going to be opposed by the beast. There's going to be a war out there. 
soon as you walk out these doors. Right? It's going to be a war. That the beast might kill you. But you're only going to be dead for a little while. What if you imbibe this? Would you go out triumphalistically into the world thinking naively that whoever you speak about Jesus to will be quite glad to hear the message and respond immediately with faith and repentance? No, of course not. But if you really imbibe this, what Revelation is telling us, would you be afraid to speak to your family members, friends, co-workers about Jesus because they might be offended or get angry or all the way along the spectrum up to kill you? No, you wouldn't. You'd be brave if you really took this to heart, if you really imbibed this, that the church never stays dead. You would be a brave Christian having eaten the scroll, hearkening back to the imagery of Revelation 10. You've tasted and you've seen that the Lord is good. And you would go out and prophesy, speak the words of God to the world as these witnesses do. You'd speak God's word in the midst of a hostile world. Your heart would have streams of water flowing from it. And in the power of the Spirit, you'd be a witness for Christ. You would believe that as you speak, some will be saved. Christ will build His church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. But you'd also be realistic. And you'd be ready for the opposition. And the hostility that you will endure. As the beast makes war against the witnesses. It wouldn't shock you. It wouldn't hit you out of left field. You'd be ready for it. I believe that at CRBC, I think we can do better at evangelism. Don't you? But browbeating and shaming doesn't produce lasting results. So if I just said, who did you share the gospel with this week? After all that Jesus has done for you, you haven't even gone and shared what he did with even one person. Right? And just just shame you, guilt trip you. Right? That doesn't produce lasting results. You know what it does? It makes everyone go share the gospel with someone this coming week. And then forget about it again for another while until they feel sufficiently guilty enough. It produces short-term results, but not lasting results to take that approach. But what really changes us. And what really fires us up for evangelism or, frankly, any Christian duty or any point of sanctification is when we deeply internalize and believe and appropriate the truths that Scripture gives us. When it becomes convictional for us. When you've changed on the inside, then you go out and do your Christian duties. To believe what Revelation 11 teaches us this morning would deal with the fear in our hearts concerning evangelism. 
Christians, let us not tremble at the beast from the bottomless pit who makes war against us. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And you, you, don't, you have no doom? You might be dead for three and a half days, but then you'll be raised. And the witness of the church will go on, even if you die. They can't silence the church. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The beast's victory is for three and a half days. But Christ's kingdom is forever. Let us, this week, as we're going to sing after communion... Let us bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Look, it's true. After what Jesus has done for you, isn't isn't He glorious? Isn't He worth proclaiming? Right? It's true, isn't it? The guilt tripping is actually true, by the way. Right? But listen, you go, okay. I believe. I look, I... I want to evangelize, but I'm so scared. Think of what you see in this passage before you. Who wins? It's not the beast. It's the two witnesses. Put steel in our spines as we go into the world proclaiming this week. Let us sing again, O Church of Christ, Invincible.